You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast. My name is Maria Malik, and I'm a rheumatology consultant at Hampshire Hospital Foundation Trust. Today, we will be talking about biologics in rheumatology, and it's a great pleasure to have Dr. Christopher Holroyd. He's a rheumatology consultant and clinical and biologics lead at University Hospital Southampton and has done a lot of work on biologics. He's also led the BSR Biologic Safety Guidelines. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Thanks very much, Mariam, for inviting me to, to join you. My pleasure. So can we start with the first question? Different types um, and classes of biologics we use in inflammatory arthritis and their indications. I think the first thing to say is we're, we're, we're very fortunate that in 2023 we have a huge variety of advanced therapies that we can can use, uh, not just biologics, but also other targeted synthetic therapies. Um, as I'm sure most people will be aware, you know, the first class of biologics that came through were the anti-TNF inhibitors in sort of 1999 to 2000. So we still have those five anti-TNF inhibitors, which are licensed across numerous indications, including rheumatoid arthritis, seronegative spondyloarthritis, psoriatic arthritis, um, and the introduction of biosimilars for some of them has, has led to a dramatic reduction in cost and also meant that we can use some biologics um, earlier in, in rheumatoid arthritis in moderate disease and severe disease. So we have the anti-TNF agents. Um, we also have um, anti-CD20, rituximab, which is licensed with methotrexate, generally used second line and beyond as per its nice indication only in rheumatoid arthritis. We then have the anti-T-cell um, co-stimulator blocker abatacept, which uh, has an approval in rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. We then have the interleukin-6 blockers, tocilizumab and cerulimab. And in terms of inflammatory arthritis, they're licensed for rheumatoid arthritis only. And then we have the JAK inhibitors, four JAK inhibitors now blocking different JAK pathways, tofacitinib, baricitinib, filgotinib, and upadacitinib, which aren't strictly biologics, but ad advanced therapies, again, licensed across an array of inflammatory conditions. So all of those previously mentioned are licensed, certainly in rheumatoid and others. There are some that are only licensed in other conditions. So for instance, for psoriatic arthritis, we have other classes. So we have the interleukin-17 blockers, which haven't shown any effect in rheumatoid arthritis, but are certainly very beneficial in psoriatic and axial arthritis. So we have secokinumab and ixakizumab. We also have erstakinumab, which has a license in psoriatic arthritis, which is an IL-1223 blocker. And then most recently, we have the pure IL-23 blockers, again, only licensed at the moment in psoriatic arthritis from an inflammatory arthritis point of view. And we have gazelkimab and ixakizumab. Uh, I think I've covered all of them there in terms of inflammatory arthritis. Obviously, there are some others that are used in uh, some of the connective tissue diseases and some of the, the rarer conditions, but they're the main ones used in inflammatory arthritis. Please, Mariam, step in if I've missed one off, because it is a long list these days. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's fine. That's amazing. Great and importantly, all, all of them are, are NICE approved. The majority are approved for first line 
and the majority approved with or without methotrexate, although there are a couple um, such as rituximab and infliximab in rheumatoid arthritis that should only be given alongside methotrexate. Thanks, that's great. Next question, can we have a brief summary of screening required before starting biologics? Absolutely. So this was one of the main questions we tried to answer when we wrote the BSR Biologic Safety Guideline. And there's not a massive amount of evidence to turn to in this respect. One thing we do know is that biologics increase your risk of infection. So it's paramount that you do screen patients for indolent infection. We wanted to keep our guideline quite simple and rather than specify different things for different biologics, bearing in mind we know that patients do end up switching biologics. So we felt that we should screen for everything uh, at, at baseline. And I, I know there could be an arguments either way, but I would certainly suggest that everyone has a, a general sort of blood panel, renal function, liver function, full blood counts. Now, I think that's just a good opportunity to set a baseline. It's unlikely that there'll be that abnormal due to the biologic, but you know we do know our patients have lots of comorbidities, so I, I'd recommend that. In terms of screening for infection, I would advocate that everybody has some form of tuberculosis screening for latent TB. Again, there's there is a lack of evidence as to absolutely what's needed, but we would recommend um, an interferon gamma release assay, such as a quantiferon test, because we know that some of the biologics, particularly the anti-TNF agents, were associated with reactivation of TB. There is less evidence that some of the other biologics cause reactivation of TB, particularly rituximab. However, we felt that Bearing in mind, as I said earlier, patients will move from one biologic to another, and often we do then forget to rescreen if needed. We may as well do everything at baseline. So, screening for infection, we'd say some form of interferon gamma release assay for tuberculosis. I generally screen everybody for HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C, and varicella. Now, in terms of screening for varicella, there's there is some evidence to suggest that patient recall is as useful as, as a blood test. So certainly where we practice locally, we would just ask the patient, have they encountered chickenpox before? And if they had, we don't routinely test them for it. If, however, a patient is unsure or is adamant that they've never had chickenpox, we would check their varicella antibodies. They're the blood tests. We'd also advocate a chest x-ray, again, as a good baseline marker and also for as part of screening for tuberculosis. Brilliant. Thank, thank you. That's helpful. Can you give us an insight into the decision-making steps you use when choosing a biologic for a patient with inflammatory arthritis, like based on their condition and comorbidities? Yeah, that, that's a great question. We're, we're fortunate that we have lots of guidelines to, to try and help us with this. Obviously, in the UK, we are limited, so the drug has to be NICE approved, obviously. But we have guidelines that we can turn to um, to help us with this in terms of ULAR guidelines or ACR guidelines. But so firstly, in England and Wales, certainly the drug has to have nice approval. Now, getting the right drug for the right patient is a whole topic in itself. And unfortunately, an area where we're still learning, I think we don't have that many robust biomarkers to try and help us here. I think we're lucky that generally speaking, most of the drugs will work in most patients. But of course, we have to look at that patient as a whole, look at their comorbidities, look at other patient factors. Now, I'd be lying if I didn't say that price was a huge driver as to what we're using, and I'm sure most places in um, in England and Wales would be using biosimilar adalimumab for a couple of reasons. Again, pr 
price, but also its heritage. It's been around for a long time. These drugs, that, you know, it's been around for 20 years or so, so we know what we're dealing with. So generally speaking, first line for most patients, I think across the different inflammatory arthritis would be an anti-TNF for most people. And generally at this moment in time, it's adalimumab. Now, obviously there are some contraindications to anti-TNF therapies, such as personal or family history of demyelinating disease. Um, and also you'll see that in the um, SPC that class three or four cardiac failures also listed. Or you may have a patient where self-injecting isn't possible or you're worried about compliance. In that situation, you may turn to one of the other lines of therapy. And again, I think this is where the, the panel of options very much opens itself up. So, you know, in psoriatic arthritis, we'd have the interleukin-17 blockers, we'd have JAK inhibitors, we'd have the IL-12-23s or the IL-23s. And then in rheumatoid, it opens up to rituximab, abatacept, JAK inhibitors, or the IL-6 inhibitors. I suppose we have some local guidelines and, and at that stage we very much separate patients into whether they're on methotrexate or not on methotrexate. If they weren't on methotrexate we would generally go for an agent that has good monotherapy data and that's where we'd go more for the interleukin-6 route or the JAK inhibitor route. If they were on methotrexate again we may consider these but rituximab may come into the mix and abatacept may come into the mix. I think the important thing is we continue to review these patients quite regularly. You know, we should be seeing them three months after changing their biologic and trying to get their inflammation under control as quickly as, as possible. I mean, we're lucky that generally most of the advanced therapies don't have a huge number of contraindications, but, but, it, but it is important to assess. Comorbidities are also important. So, for instance, if you have a patient at high risk of infection, there's some anecdotal evidence that drugs like etanercept, which is one of the anti-TNF agents, or abatacept from real-world studies possibly have slightly lower risks of infection. And then one of the beauties of the JAK inhibitors is, is their very short half-life. So they've got a half-life of, of generally sort of 12 hours or so. So if you're after a drug that can be reversible quite quickly, that might send you down the, the, the JAK inhibitor route. Coexistent interstitial lung disease sometimes we encounter with rheumatoid arthritis. We're now fortunate that we do have some antifibrotic drugs available to us. But if you're looking for a biologic that has some evidence in helping interstitial lung disease in patients with rheumatoid rituximab, has some data and also a batacept. So there's lots of ifs and buts and, and, and do's and don'ts here. The, the first thing is, you know, we need to make sure a patient doesn't have a contraindication. The second thing is, are they on methotrexate or, or not? Um, and the third thing is, are there any specific patient factors that may send you down a certain pathway? But generally speaking, I'd say 90% of our patients would go on to a biosimilar anti-TNF at first line. And that's across rheumatoid PSA and AS. Review them at three months and, and, and then take it from there. The next question is about vaccination. So the rheumatology team would generally get lots of questions from patients and GPs on vaccination in patients receiving biologics. So can we have a little guidance, please? Absolutely. So the first thing to say is we know that biologics increase patients' risks of infections and often less usual infections. So it is important that patients are offered the full vaccination schedule if possible. The first thing to say is that 
patients on biologics should not be receiving any live vaccines. There aren't that many live vaccines around these days. If a patient had to have a live vaccine, then that should be ideally given pre-biologic or the patient would have to come off their biologic for a period of time, give the vaccine and then and, and then start it again. The only scenario this really comes up is with regards to chickenpox. So the chickenpox vaccine is still a live vaccine. So patients receiving a biologic cannot have the chickenpox vaccine. In terms of which vaccines we do recommend, so every patient on a biologic should have the annual flu vaccine. Um, we know that's got good data at preventing flu and is a non-live vaccine. I suggest that patients have the pneumococcal vaccine every five years until the age of 65. If at screening a patient was found to have very low levels of chickenpox antibodies or had never had chickenpox, then they should be vaccinated against chickenpox before starting their biologic. Um, patients should have their COVID vaccine and they are considered in the high risk group to have all the boosters that are available to them. And then finally, it's the shingles vaccine. So historically, the shingles vaccine, we only had one, it was Zostavax, and that was a live vaccine, which meant that unfortunately, our patients on biologics couldn't receive it. Now, shingles doesn't have a high mortality, but it can have a high morbidity. It can be nasty. Patients getting shingles, there's a higher rate of ophthalmic shingles with patients on biologics. There's a higher rate of post-hepatic neuralgia in patients on biologics, so it is important. We're now very fortunate that there is a newer vaccine called Shingrix, which has fantastic efficacy, and that's a non-live vaccine. It's given as two courses, um, at least two to six months apart, and that is approved for anyone who's immunosuppressed over the age of 18, in fact. Now, we were being limited because the Green Book in the UK from the Department of Health was saying to limit this to patients over the age of 70. However, recently this has been relaxed to patients over the age of 50. So, you know, if you have a patient over the age of 50, I would advocate that they get the shingles vaccine as well, but they have to have the Shingrix vaccine. One other thing to mention is vaccination and rituximab, or, or let's vaccination and all biologics. We generally know that the immunity you'll get from a vaccination if you're on a biologic will be less than if you weren't on a biologic, but nonetheless, they're still important to have. Vaccinations and rituximab are an issue. So once a patient's had rituximab, they're not going to mount very much of a B cell response for several months. So if you vaccinate shortly after giving rituximab, the vaccine's really not going to do much at all. And there's no set timeline as to when all of a sudden you're, you will become immune after rituximab. So in patients who, who are having rituximab, I suggest that it's pointless having any vaccines for at least the next three months because they're not going to be effective. And that's really come to light recently with the COVID vaccine because we've needed patients to have this quite regularly. And it's proven quite an issue with rituximab. And actually, our, our use of rituximab has fallen for a couple of reasons. But one of them has been the difficulty surrounding vaccinating and rituximab. Great, that's really helpful. Can you please touch on biologics and timing of surgical procedures? Again, a common question uh, to a rheumatology registrar from, you know, the surgical registrar or the orthopedics team. Absolutely. And again, this was something we covered in the biologics safety guideline. And first thing I would say, this is an area of little research. The research that is available has generally come from orthopedic surgeons. The, the data has been generally small studies, high risk of, of bias. So we have to take that with a pinch of salt. And in fact, the results have been relatively conflicting. Of course, there have been some studies that have seen that if patients stay on their biologic, their risk of infection is worse. But there have been some studies showing that it doesn't make much difference. Nonetheless, I guess our concern is that 
you know, if we don't stop a patient's biologic and they're having surgery, we lead them at a higher risk of getting an infection. On the other hand, if we stop the biologics too soon, there's a high chance that their disease will flare, giving them a poorer post-operative outcome and the need for rescue steroids. And we've always known that steroids do have lots of side effects. I think the risk of infection and steroids has been really exemplified by some of the COVID data to coming through. So we don't want our patients needing lots of steroids. So we've tried to keep things simple. And what we've said is that for biologics, if the surgery is deemed to be low risk in terms of infection, so that'll be most of the orthopedic surgeries, we would say just miss a dose of your biologic. So if you're on adalimumab every two weeks, make sure you miss a dose and you could then have surgery from day 15 after your last dose. And then restart it roughly two weeks later, so long as everything that needs to be removed has been removed and there's no sign of infection. With rituximab, you're looking at between three to six months, I would advocate. And then with the JAK inhibitors, well, there's even less slash no data about JAK inhibitors. However, one of the beauties of JAK inhibitors is that their half-life is quite short. So their half-life's only uh, 12 hours for, for the majority of them. So in that situation, I'm sort of advocating stopping about three to four days before surgery. But it's still an area of very little data. Um, Lots of hospitals have come up with their own local guidelines developed on the basis of our BSR guideline. And certainly we've done that in Southampton and that certainly helped limit the number of emails and inquiries that we get, but we still get lots of them. I, I suppose the only exception will be if a patient is having higher risk surgery where they do think there is a high risk of infection and that would have to be decided by the surgeon and in that situation you could consider stopping three to five half-lives beforehand but for some of these biologic drugs three to five half-lives is a very long time and it would mean you end up having your patient off their biologic for a long time and I worry that their disease will flare needing steroids etc so the majority of times missing one dose seems to be okay. So can you tell us a bit about the washout period when uh, switching biologics? Yes, it's not something I practice, actually. So again, it's an area of very limited data and I don't practice a washout at all. So if a patient's moving from one biologic to another, I would say to them, you can start your new biologic when the, the dose of your, your last biologic was due. Um, I suppose, again, rituximab can be tricky because rituximab is given at maximum every six months, but you will get some patients on it a lot less frequently. Generally speaking, I'd be comfortable changing someone's biologic three months after their last rituximab infusion, so long as their full blood count was stable. But otherwise, I don't practice a washout period. I think that just ends up delaying things. You know, if a patient is needing to change biologics, they're already struggling. And the priority is to try and control their inflammation. That's what's going to minimise long-term issues. Great. That's interesting. Thank you. Can you guide us on tapering of biologics in stable patients? Yeah, absolutely. So that's something that we've been interested in in Southampton for some time, and we've published our data looking into this. And it and it is an it is an area of research, and it's something that's practiced across the world. There's lots of studies. So I think the first thing to say is yes. I think tapering of patients who are stable. By stable, I would advocate patients in remission. The majority of the data is coming from rheumatoid arthritis as well. So in those patients, someone in remission, they're established on their biologic for at least six months. Then I do think tapering is something that is worth 
trying so long as that patient is completely on board with that decision the patient should not be forced to have to taper because we know it just won't work if that is the case and we know that some of our patients are very attached to their biologic because it's the only thing that's made a difference to their condition but yes yeah, so the majority of evidence out there is around the tapering of anti-tnf agents and it's generally speaking it's reducing the interval by around 30 to 50 percent so let's take adalimumab it's either moving it to every three weeks or, or then every four weeks and and so on the data when you look at the studies that have been published across the world the data can be quite different certainly locally when we looked at our data if you went out to about nine months around 60 to 70 percent of patients who tapered to some degree were still on that tapered dose however when we followed that longer term data throughout to a couple of years we're down to about 30 percent and i think we see that in the trials. Most of the trials are for a relatively short period of time. There definitely will be that cohort of patients, however, that long-term do not need the licensed dose. I think a couple of other things to discuss is, is what happens if that patient were to flare. That is one of the biggest reasons why patients may question tapering. And what I generally say, and what the data suggests to us, is that generally speaking, you re recapture disease control upon reinitiating their their previous dose. Patients often obviously have to be given the reassurance that you will they will be able to get hold of you easily and you'll respond to them quickly. There's been a lot of work looking into what predicts a successful taper and again the evidence is relatively conflicting and lots of studies haven't shown anything any robust patient characteristics that can successfully predict taper. One that does tend to come up is the deeper the remission you're in, the more likely the success of taper. Another is the use of methotrexate. So patients on methotrexate may have a more successful taper than those on monotherapy. But, you know, if you look at all the different studies, each has probably identified one or two patient factors that then doesn't get replicated in the next study. So it's just a, a bit of a, a bit of a minefield. I mean, the other question sometimes I encounter with patients is, you know, talking about tapering, do you taper the methotrexate or do you taper the biologics? Certainly patients would rather taper the methotrexate and we're talking about tapering the biologics. That's a, a, a whole discussion. Why are we doing tapering? So I think there are two main reasons, aren't there? There's a cost that's less relevant these days, I think, because the price has come down relatively dramatically. So there's less cost saving to be had. So the next one is, is safety. It makes sense that being on a lower frequency or dose of your biologic should be safer. But actually, when you look at the data, very few studies have actually looked at this particular parameter. I think when I last it, there was only one study that really looked at safety and they didn't notice any difference in the adverse events for the patients who remained on their usual dose compared to the taper dose. So logic tells us it should be safer, but we need a bit more evidence. But certainly it is cost saving, but the savings aren't quite what they would have been 10 years ago. But I think most patients, so long as they're given time to discuss it, they're happy with the decision, you talk frankly about the likelihood of success and importantly, the fact that you'll be there to support them if things don't go quite to plan, are generally happy to give this a try. I think they buy into the concept of, you know, why be on more drug than I need. Right. Finally, the hot topic, JAK inhibitors and recent safety evidence. Can we have an update, please? Yes, so um, I've sort of touched on JAK inhibitors already. So we have four JAK inhibitors. The ones that have been around the longest are tofacitinib, which we've had licensed in the EMA uh, since 2017, but five years before that 
in America and then baricitinib since 2017. Now we've known from the clinical trials of all four biologics that there is a higher risk of shingles, more than you see with the likes of the anti-TNF agents. Less of an issue now that we can vaccinate, but nonetheless, there is this shingles story. More recently, some more data has come to light, predominantly from a safety study called oral surveillance, which was a safety study mandated by the FDA in America looking at safety risks of tofacitinib. So it was comparing patients with cardiovascular risk factors over the age of 50 going on to tofacitinib versus anti-TNF. It could be adalimumab and etanercept. And this study kept going until a certain number of cardiac events had happened and malignancy events had happened. And then there was a comparative between the two. The first thing that came along is actually an increased risk of DVT was seen. The study wasn't powered to identify this, but the this, this study did show this, particularly in the higher risk, the higher dose tofacitinib group. So that dose was taken out of the study. And then when you've looked at the sort of final cut, tofacitinib was not non-inferior to adalimumab in terms of cardiovascular events and malignancy. So we have that data. And on the basis of that data, and there is some real world data about baricitinib, the EMA have, have made a statement saying that JAK inhibitors in, in inflammatory arthritis should only be considered in patients who are over the age of 50 with cardiovascular risk factors or malignancy risk factors if there's no other suitable options. Now, a few things to say about that. I mean, the data is is really coming from one study on from one drug. And you could caveat that by saying, well, is, is tofacitinib truly increasing your risk of cardiovascular disease and malignancy, or is adalimumab actually reducing your risks? There was no there was no arm of patients on placebo. So we need to bear that in that in mind. There is a similar study going on with baricitinib at the moment. Um, which hasn't yet reported. And then the other two JAK inhibitors, whilst the EMA has the statements covers all four, the other two JAK inhibitors, actually, when you look at their clinical trial program, they don't have this signal coming through. So it's quite complex. I think we need more data. We need more real world data. We need more registry data. We need more longer term data for the other three JAK inhibitors before we call it. But I think we do have to heed the EMA recommendations. I think the phrasing of no suitable alternative almost suggests that you should use JAK inhibitors after you've used everything else under the sun. And I, uh, speaking to people who were involved in that, I don't think that was really the, the message that they wanted to convey. It was more sort of, again, bearing in mind potential risk. So I think you have to take patient factors into consideration here. And, you know, smoking, previous cardiovascular disease, hypertension, they all come into play. And I think if you, if you have a patient and they do have lots of those risk factors or a previous malignancy, then a JAK inhibitor wouldn't be my first option. But, you know, if that patient has tried two or three other drugs and their arthritis is still not controlled, we need to really get on top of the inflammation. So I wouldn't exclude them. So it's an area of increasing research. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years, particularly with the newer JAK inhibitors. You know, the data is the data. The EMA have written this statement that that isn't going to change anytime soon. So we have to bear that that in mind and just be open and, and honest with our patients. You know, certainly when I looked at the data, if you take people who are currently smoking out of the equation and you take people who had had cardiovascular events out of the equation, when you're comparing tofacitinib and adalimumab, the, the, the lines became very, very similar to each other. So, um, yes, an area where, you know, when you go to the conferences these days, particularly ULAR and ACR, there's a lot of data coming coming through. But as I, as I say, the data for the two new JAK inhibitors looks, looks reassuring, but it's not real-world data.
Thank you so much, Chris, for taking out time to join us today. And thanks to everyone listening. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Mariam. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.